0: So you'll notice that in our passage this evening Paul charges Timothy at the start to point out these things to the brothers and sisters. And if you've been following along with us in our series in 1 Timothy, you will remember that that these things are, are all the things that he has just commanded to Timothy to do so that Timothy can fight the battle well and care for his people. So Paul's getting us to think about challenging False teaching, ensuring that prayer is of first importance, the ways that men and women are to act, the raising up of qualified elders and deacons, basically how to behave in the household of God. And he says that doing these things will ensure that Timothy is a good minister of Christ Jesus. And that's kind of what this verse tonight is all about, about becoming that good minister of Christ Jesus. In verse 8, you might note, we get another trustworthy saying, and underline this because this is sort of the key to the verse, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. So the feel of the verse here is very much on Paul urging Timothy to train for godliness, to be molded into that good minister for Christ Jesus. And so what are we going to do tonight is to try and see how we can train for godliness, how we are molded into the good and faithful servants that that we want to be. And to do that, we're going to work through our passage thinking about an athlete and how they train for their goals. So if you think a few weeks ago, we had the, the church as a mother, but now we are thinking about us as individuals being spiritual athletes. Now you can look around and see that we have a great many athletes in our congregation this evening and and they will tell you that the training requires you to say yes to certain activities and to invest in particular activities. But also to say no to others, to to avoid some things. So if you're taking notes, we're going to look firstly at those things that that Paul advises Timothy to say no to and then we're going to look at those things that he needs to invest in and say no. to. So what to avoid and what to invest in for his training in godliness? What to avoid first? Look with me to verse 7. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. So if you remember, this is an allusion back to chapter 1 where we saw that that some false teachers were, were leading the church astray by departing from the doctrine that they had received. They had made shipwreck of their faith. So if you want to paraphrase what we're being told here, you could say that have nothing to do with false doctrine. And it's a really clear charge here. Notice that in verse 6 we have Timothy being nourished on the truths of the faith, on, on good doctrine. And here we get the charge to have nothing to do with the bad. It's like turning towards the good is going to require us to turn away from the bad like you know this we live in a society that mixes and matches truth your truth my truth and and it's all affected how we come and look at scripture because too often we find the positions on the bible that we like and then we try and find justification for them somewhere in those pages think of the person who professes faith but is battling with homosexual tendencies might be tempted to twist Scripture into saying it's okay to be a gay Christian. Now, that's an easy example, but but we do it too, don't we? A husband tries to wiggle out of the command to sacrificially love his wife and to sacrifice his well-being for hers. A businessman avoids the call to share the gospel with his work colleagues. A wealthy person finds excuses for their lack of giving. All too often, we read the Bible to find the answers that, that we want rather than being conformed to the word. So when you come to a passage that challenges your cultural understanding of things, do you immediately think, no, no, that can't be right? Or do you pray that God opens your eyes to his ways, which might be entirely different to our ways? We said a couple of weeks ago that the solution to, uh, to false teaching false leaders was good ones and the way that we can recognize bad theology false doctrine godless myths is by having a firm foundation on the truth but sadly too many of us hide behind a a simple faith or a busy schedule as a excuse for not pursuing knowledge and wisdom I've, I've mentioned a few times I think people think I'm joking about this but if you're able go and go and study Go take a course at Union or Corn Hill, do the C.S. Lewis course, get into a life-on-life group, read good books, discuss things with people. Do you know that we have a confession and and catechisms that set out the basic truths of our faith? They they are gold. Please read them. If anyone feels the need to do more of that but doesn't know where to begin, then come and chat with me after. We can grab a coffee. I'd dearly love to help you with that, and I know that Christoph and the elders would as well. The athlete must know what will hinder their development, those strategies that sound good, but ultimately steer them off the right path. Family, the first thing to avoid are false doctrines. Let's look at verse 12. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Now, make a note here, because Timothy obviously can't force people to think well of him. So so what is it to be avoided here? Well, Max Licato has a great wee kid's book called The, the Wonderful World of, of If For any grandparents or parents with young kids, I really highly recommend it. But there's, there's a story in it where people stick stars on you if you do something good and, and dots on you if you do something bad. So everyone can know who's good and, and, and who's bad. And, and they all do this until one day we meet someone who has no dots and no stars on them. And she explains that they only stick to you If you let them. She didn't have any dots or any stars. Because she only cared what her maker thought of her. Not the other people. It's easy to see in an honour shame culture. People can react to the shame that others stick to them. They are told that they have shame. And so they act in a way that that hides themselves. So that others won't see that shame. We know that, that wearing our shame... Affects us, And if Timothy were to wear this shame, the shame of being young and inexperienced, then he wouldn't be bold in preaching, would he? He wouldn't challenge the flock, he wouldn't practice church discipline, he wouldn't confront the false teachers, wouldn't do the work of an elder or fight the battle well. So Timothy is to avoid letting other people's judgments of him mould who he sees himself as. Ask yourself this question. Who are you? What are you? Some of us look around and see disapproving stares at every corner. We take our own insecurities, our own shame and whatever sin that we have in our lives and we assume that everyone else must be thinking that about us too. We know that God has dealt with our sin but it just seems to cling to us. We know that there's forgiveness in the cross for for those people over there. But surely our sin is just too much. It's too great. Maybe we think we used to be good, but haven't read our Bible in a while. God wouldn't want a relationship with someone like us. The whispers of the accuser wind their way into our thoughts and shame takes over. We are just so ready to hear that we are useless, that we mistake the, the hideous voice of the enemy for the tender pleas of our Lord. And so we wear our shame, not in a way that leads to, to joyous repentance, but in a way that leads to despair. Who am I? Nobody. What am I? A hopeless sinner. Sure, look at me, falling into that sin again. Again. Not measuring up to that person again, disappointing God again. Brothers and sisters, we have to avoid wearing false shame, avoid the lies of the evil one, because you are a child of God. You, you might sin, but you have the hope of salvation. Timothy was young. You are a sinner, but none of that matters because your worth is not in who you are or what you do, but in Christ. How often do we forget that? How often do we listen to the lies of Satan and question whether God really said that you are forgiven? The athlete needs to avoid listening to the boos of the crowd, the predictions of gloom from the commentators. And family, we need to avoid wearing shame that is not ours because Christ has taken it. There is no longer condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So listen to that. Focus on that. Make that the soundtrack to your life. Don't let your opinion or others' opinion of you shape who you are. Listen to what God says of you. Avoid it. We need to keep moving, moving sorry. But let's look with me to verse 14. It says, do not neglect your gift. We as humans are so prone to to mission drift, aren't we? To allowing the irrelevant to drive us off course. The urgent always seems to beat the necessary, doesn't it? Think of the person overwhelmed with stress in their job that they neglect their wife at home. They have neglected the the important thing, the the daughter that God has given them to protect and care for because they're focusing on things that this world pushes on them. Their priorities have become twisted. Paul tells Timothy here not to neglect his gift. gift. Meaning, don't don't waste your time and energy on meaningless things. You've only so much time to give, only so many resources to employ. Don't let them be sucked up by other things. Focus on what God has given you. The athlete needs to be focused and disciplined. Now, I actually think that most of us aren't Lazy when it comes to this. We're, we're just distracted. We spend our emotional energy and our intellectual energy making decisions about ridiculous things what to wear, what to eat, what people will think of us. And so when it comes time to train for godliness, it's at the end of our list and we're just exhausted. I have to be continually assessing whether my life bears out the priorities that I claim to have. Because we can say that we value spiritual things. But what does our life show? Are we investing more time in social media or work or hobbies than in knowing God better? What does your bank statement say about what you value? Saying yes to one thing usually involves saying no to another. And Paul tells us not to neglect the things that God has given us to do. Not to to value something so highly that it displaces God as our priority. Not to say yes to anything, even good things, if it means saying no to him. So what is our top priority? The most important thing that God has given us to do? Man's chief aim? I was waiting for the, the big echo back there. <laughs> to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What are you doing to enjoy God What are you prioritizing over that? Because the athlete needs to avoid such twisting and keep their priorities straight. What Paul is getting at here is that allowing these activities to take hold of us is the sin that so easily entangles. They are the things that prevent us from running as we would. They're they're like forcing a runner to, to carry bags and luggage Yes, they can still run, but it's the difference between that person you see out and running in the morning for the sheer joy of it, and that person dragging a suitcase, balancing coats and bags as they rush to the airport to try and catch their flight. It's like Paul is saying to Timothy, don't, don't bother with all that stuff. Just, just run with joy. It might like like the good stuff to bring, but really it's only going to steal your joy. It's only going to slow you down. So avoid that sin, not to be a respectable Christian, but to be a joyous one. That's the the negative side, of the things to avoid. But before we go on to the, the positive, I want to be clear on what we're talking about, so that we aren't tempted to fall into kind of a legalistic reading of this. So. Let's think about the distinction between our union with God and our communion with God. Okay, So, in your notes, give yourself two headings here. One union and and one communion. Our union with God, when we talk about that, that is our salvation. It is God choosing to save us while we were still sinners. It has nothing to do with us. And so, we can do nothing to lose it. Nothing we can do can make it any more true. Nothing we can do can make it stop. It's, it's like being a child. I will always be my parents' child. Nothing can change that for anyone. It's a simple fact, it's, it's in our DNA. <coughs> but communion is, is different. Communion is our experience of that salvation. It is, it is us choosing to enjoy God. And that experience can increase or decrease based upon circumstances. So think of that more like a marriage. How much we enjoy our marriage depends on what we invest in it so more time care and attention is going to make for more joy warmth and togetherness so so where we can do nothing about our union that's god's responsibility and we can rejoice in that We, we can affect our communion and that's our responsibility so think of it like this reading your bible doesn't make you more of a christian but it will make you enjoy being a Christian. So what we're going to talk about now is is our communion, how we experience the salvation that God has already given us. So hopefully we won't hear this as Paul wagging the finger and telling us to just be good. But more like Paul coaching us on how we can run with more joy. Keep that in mind as we dive into the positives. What to invest in for godliness, what to train ourselves in. Well, if we look at the text after Paul gives us some more motivation for why we should strive for godliness in verse 10. That's putting our focus on on Christ again and and showing how our action or response flows from his work. We get this in in verse 11. Command and teach these things. So you've got your journals there. Draw a line between these things in verse 11 and these things in verse 6. So you can see the repetition in Paul's thought. What these things are is just his arguments so far. But the important thing for us to notice is they're not suggestions. They are authoritative words that can be commanded. We talked about how false doctrines read what they want into the Bible. This is the flip side of that coin where we acknowledge that the Bible is authoritative over us. That we train ourselves to see what is being said so that we can conform to that thing in our lives. Our culture is about self expression, about presenting your true, authentic self to the world, about reaching inside and, and finding ourselves. But the Bible tells us that what we find deep down in our hearts isn't what we should be expressing. In fact, we talk about denying ourselves, picking up our cross, dying to ourselves, not expressing it. So yes, you, you might like something. Yes, you might feel like it's an intrinsic part of you. And yet you still might have to put it to death for Christ. Getting into the Bible, accepting what God has to say to us, isn't about making us better people. It's about making us different people. It's about being transformed into his likeness. So an athlete lives differently. They form their lives based upon their goal and not the short-term desires. And so for us in our training for Godliness, we need to be sold out for Jesus. We need to hold the goal of knowing him above all else. That's the first point in this section. Get into your Bible and take it seriously. The next thing comes in verse 12. Verse 12 says this. Set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Now there is a specific application for leaders here that that elders should show how to live so that we can imitate them as they imitate Christ. I hope if you're an elder here that is your goal. But it also applies to all of us as we train in godliness because the sense of this verse is that the totality of a believer's life should point to God's work in them. So we have speech and conduct, what we say and how we act, in love. So think of that as a sort of a default disposition towards people in, in faith. So that's our, our default disposition towards God. And then purity, that's our default disposition towards ourselves. And also our lives. But but also towards our integrity and all these other aspects. So we're not double-minded or just acting a role, but, but we speak, act, love, and worship from our hearts in a genuineness that is evident to see. So what we should be thinking about here is, how do our speech and conduct build us up in godliness? And how do they tear us down? I once worked for an education charity and we had a challenge to do. We were only allowed to speak positive things for 24 hours. And I'll tell you, it was was pretty hard. But what I noticed that was when I removed that ability to speak negatively, I I genuinely felt more positive. Now, what we're talking about here is, is not just positive thinking, but about how what we say can orientate our hearts either towards God or towards the world. If we allow ourselves to engage in gossip and slander, that's going to take root in our minds and it will affect our hearts. But if we engage in encouragement, in in support of people, that's also going to take root in our minds and affect our hearts. So think, is is your pattern of speech a, a vicious circle or a virtuous one? Does your pattern of life build you and other people up? Are you actively trying to to love the people around you as unlovable as they might be? Are you actively trying to worship the Lord with your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Now, that's not to make us feel guilty, but just to open our eyes a little to what our default is. Because if we can conform some of these things, then there's a real possibility for greater joy and enjoyment of God. So after this, ask your friends or your partner or your family what your defaults are. What could you invest in? And then be an example. Not of slavish obedience, but of joy. Be that athlete who runs with a smile. But that's not all. Verse, verse 13 says this. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Again, there's a specific application to ministers, but but we should never think that the ministry of the word is limited to elders. So, when your friend tells you they're going through a hard time, what do you do? Do you give them a pep talk? No, don't do that. You own the Bible, open it up and minister God's word to them. When your child has a difficult decision about the future to make, do you leave it to the world to advise them? I really hope not. You open the scriptures. When someone asks you what the preacher is on about, I'm hoping you don't try and just rephrase what I say. I hope you open the word. In discipleship of younger Christians, in offering support to those who are hurting, in evangelism, it is the word that is the sword that we use. We minister the word to each other, not teaching whatever we think is best, not some Christianized philosophy of the world, but the word. So often we can try the latest strategy, the latest way that the world tells us will help people. But we forget that in the scriptures we have everything necessary for faith and godliness. An athlete needs to use the right equipment or they won't be effective. And so if we want to train in godliness, we need to use what God has given us. How devoted to reading the scriptures are you? Again, again, Don't let your heart go there. Don't let you feel I'm out for you here because we shouldn't feel guilty. We should just realize that there is something that we can do right now to deepen our relationship with God. There there is something that you can start to do, a habit that you can form to deepen your enjoyment of Him. Isn't that just amazing news? Certainly it's going to be hard at times. But the cumulative effect of being in the Word will move us along that path of life. One final thought that will hopefully move us on to worship. In all of this, when you read through the passage again, Paul gives us strong urging. Train yourself. Devote yourselves. Give yourselves wholly. What we're talking about here is not a desire to just try a little. It's, It's a plea to get us to passionately and devoutly orientate our lives to these things. Verse 15, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. But when I say that, you have to fight really hard against that voice that tries to get you to think that this just means be good or that this is some kind of legalism. Because Paul isn't saying, fight hard to earn your salvation. Fight hard to be good in God's sight. Rather, he's saying in verse 10, why we labor and strive is because we have put our hope in Christ. Paul calls him, and and underline this, the living God. Because there is a dynamic personal connection to God as he upholds us and guides us and daily walks in us. And in following his ways, in conforming our lives to him, in picking up our cross to follow him, Paul sees that we get close to him. We get to experience more of him. We get to see his faithfulness. We get to see his majesty. We get to see a glory that causes heaven itself to shout, holy, holy, holy. In crowning him king in our lives, we get to experience more of the joy that we were created to know. And so, brothers and sisters, I do want to urge you to avoid sin and to train for godliness, not because I want you to be more respectable, because I want you to know joy. That's the effect of making him king. That's the effect of godliness. So as I invite the band to come back up, I'm going to invite us all to sing again with great joy. To either cry out to know more of God, to experience him more, or to simply express the joy you have at all that he has done. Because family, we have an awesome God. We join together as one people who have been saved, not because of anything good that we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us.